Let's take our Bibles. Our study is in 2 Peter chapter 1. I love this passage of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll try to be as brief as I can this morning, but there's such great word here. This is one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the most powerful and encouraging passages in the Bible, and it's so full of personal application. As I started to study, I wrote at the bottom of the page, make sure you have personal application. And as I went through it, I thought, I don't need to add anything to this text. I don't need to give you three steps of what to do. The, the personal application is just chock full of this passage. And we need to take the Word as it is. We need to ask the Holy Spirit right now to speak to our hearts. We need to write down what He impresses upon our hearts as we study. And then we need to apply it. Because this text gives us such a tremendous, reassuring, empowering truth uh, for us as believers. While it also lays out the, the very great calling that God gives to everyone who loves Jesus Christ. So this is a passage, if you ever need spiritual strength, if you ever need clarity on what's expected of you as a believer, run to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-11, to because it will absolutely give it to you, okay? We're going to get right into the text because there's a lot here. 2 Peter 1. 2, uh, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power, this is your verse for the week to memorize, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. What a verse of Scripture that is. For by these, verse 4, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Double negative there. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, by all the more diligent, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, here's the promise, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, right at the outset, look back at verse 1. Peter is writing to like-minded believers. In the first book that he wrote, 1 Peter, he addressed it to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he makes it clear that he is writing right now to those who are characterized by their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the joys, I was talking about the family of God a second ago, one of the joys is that when we find people who trust the Lord and who love the Lord and who are committed to sanctified living... There's a natural affinity, isn't there? There's that drawing in. You can sense it when you meet them that 
that, that they receive biblical truth like you do, that they love Christ like you do, that they desire the same things that you do. You just, you just know it when you're around people who love the Lord like you do. You can, you can feel it in their presence. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their conversation. When you watch their, their demeanor, when you watch their actions, when you see their character, it's, it's all supported. And anytime I'm around somebody like that, I, I just want to be around them even more. I want the, that, that spiritual like-mindedness, that, that spiritual heart and mind that's the same as I pray mine is. I, I just want to be around that. But that affinity gets disturbed when there's selfishness. That affinity gets gets fractured when there's a love of self and there's a desire for, for compromised worldly living. Even among people who identify themselves as Christians, it creates this, this nagging kind of feeling of, of difference. And that's why the Bible says we're called to speak truth and love to each other. We have a responsibility to, if I'm struggling, if I'm stumbling, if you see me being worldly, if you look at my actions or my character or the way I talk to my kids or, or you see me in a situation that you go, Rhodes is compromising. Your job and my job is to speak to each other in love and say, you need to stop that. That's the body. The body not only prays for each other, as we just did for the Canaltes, but the body is also called to call each other out. To say, hey, you're not living right. And I'm not saying that uh, uh, judgmentally or meanly or pejoratively. I'm saying that because I love you and because you're part of my family and I don't want to see you stumble. So there's this affinity that we have. And Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter makes it clear that those who love the Lord are identified, look back at verse 1, by a clear faith that's based on the righteousness of Christ. Everything comes back to the righteousness of Christ as we just celebrated at the table. Because without the righteousness of Christ, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no forgiveness. We have no release from sin. We have no exoneration of guilt. We have no eternal life. The relationship with Christ is still broken without Christ. So it all rests on Jesus Christ. I want you to just let that truth soak in. You've heard that before. I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. But just sit with that thought. Everything rests on Christ. So we each have to ask ourselves, does my faith solely rest on Christ? Or do I think that it's faith in Christ plus? See, we can answer that question by answering four questions that get to the heart of what we believe. Have you admitted to God that you are trying to do, that, excuse me, have you admitted to God that trying to do what you think is right is a complete failure? Have you said, Lord, I need your grace. I can't save myself. Or do you still think that trying to do what's right, trying harder every day is going to get you to heaven? Question two, have you confessed your sins to him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you asked him to forgive you and cleanse you? Or have you resisted doing that? Have you said, you know what, I'll get to it at a later time. You know, down the road, uh, when I get a little farther down life and I enjoy life a little bit more, then I'll make a decision. Nothing's guaranteed. 
The morning Robert set out in his car, he had no idea by the evening he'd be laying in a hospital fighting for his life. He had no, no clue of that. Have you trusted him to be the only Savior? Or do you still think that your works count? Have you asked him to be Lord of your life? Have you surrendered your will to him? Or do you still think that you have a right to have control of parts of your life? See, salvation is only found in the first part of those answers. Salvation is only found in Christ. It's never dependent on us or on anything else. The Bible says neither is there salvation in any other, only in Christ. So we come to this text and we see that Peter says the distinguishing mark is the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we, we may know the truths, but have we given our lives to the truths? Do our, do our lives evidence faith based on the righteousness of Christ? Because we can't state often enough how much we need Christ. You cannot say often enough, I need Jesus Christ. I need Jesus Christ for salvation. I need Jesus Christ to forgive me my sins. I need Jesus Christ to sustain me day after day. I need Jesus Christ to be the source of my praise. I need to pray through Jesus Christ to, to, to be heard. I, I need everything in my life has to be about Christ. But the constant attack of our minds is, no, you don't need Christ. You just need you. Live for yourself. Forget Christ He's not worth it. Now, we know cognitively that's wrong, but it's amazing how subtly we allow that to creep into our minds as an option. That's why the Spirit writes this text to us through Peter. Because if there's anybody that was a living example of, of insecure, inadequate, overzealous failure, it's Peter. There's nobody that could have written this text better than Peter. And he moves from this flawed person that we see and we kind of cringe over and we go, no, Peter, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't, don't, no, Peter, stop. I mean, we, we see ourselves a lot in Peter like, ah. And then after we see the resurrection, I'll, I'll, I'll dare us to find anybody that loved the Lord more than Peter. See, Peter was transformed. He was so humbled by the grace of God and he was so aware of his own inadequacy that when it came time to kill him, when he was martyred for his faith and they said, we're going to crucify you like Jesus, the Jesus that you love and serve, Peter said, uh -uh, I'm not worthy of that. Crucify me upside down. Because I would never, never be worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Savior was. So turn me upside down. You imagine crucifixion was, was awful enough as it was. Now imagine being turned upside down with all the blood rushing to your head and the pain and the, and the torture of crucifixion. But that's how humbled Peter was by what Christ had done for him. So, so when we read these words, and we're going to look at the text here in just a second, I want you to be just aware of the joy and the passion that comes out of his words here. And it starts right after verse 2 into verse 3. He begins by reminding us of the amazing truth and how completely gracious the Lord is. Not only is God willing to forgive us, not only is God willing to cleanse us, not only is God willing to secure us, but He doesn't leave us on our own to try our best. Heaven help us that we have that mindset that, that Christianity is just about trying our best. 
that, that Christ has died and He's forgiven us and He's cleansed us and He's indwelled us and He's secured us. Now He just kind of says, you know what, Rhodes? Do the best you can till I come back or till you come to heaven. Now look at what the text says. I love this. It says He fully equips us with everything we need to live as set-apart, sanctified, holy, like Christ, children of God. He gives us everything we need to live as set apart, sanctified, holy like Christ, children of God. Now that raises a huge question at the outset. If our nature is changed and we have the Holy Spirit and we're fully equipped, then why doesn't every believer live this way? That's a question we have to ask, and it makes us uncomfortable. But why isn't every believer a perfect picture of Christ? Why isn't every believer, including myself, so radically different from the world and so powerful in their witness of the gospel that, that the world's kind of almost shocked by it, that, that the world's disarmed by it? Why isn't every believer like the disciples as they're described in Acts 4.13 where it says they looked at them and they saw they were uneducated and, and inexperienced and untrained, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, the presence of God was so strong in them that it was absolutely unmistakable. And as I thought about that verse, I said to myself and I said to the Lord, Lord, is that me? Is that what I look like? Is that what our church looks like? Is that what you look like this morning? If not, then why not? Why doesn't that describe every single believer, every evangelical church? Why aren't we marked by such a distinctive character and such a power in our lives that it's absolutely unmistakable? Because the text says God's given us everything that we need. And if we're not everything that He's equipped us to be, then the answer has to be that there's something that we're doing. And the answer to that is in verses 5 to 8, which we'll study in a few moments. But first, let's establish very quickly what He's done for us. Look at verses 3 and 4, because they are, they're a theological goldmine. We could spend days and days and days and days breaking apart verses 3 and 4. And every time we read these, it should cause us to just praise God and be so humbled by what He's done and be so filled with power and confidence and an unquenchable desire to live for Him. There are five distinguishing facts here, and I want to encourage you, write these down or underline them in your Bible. We need this this week. We need this, this strength from the Lord this week. But there are five facts here that are true of anyone who has a faith by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, number one is in verse three. We're told that He has given us His divine power. He has given us His divine power. This is the Holy Spirit. The disciples were told when Jesus left in Acts 1.8, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit indwells us at the moment when we trust Christ as Savior. Because we are bought with a price. We just celebrated it. Ownership is transferred. We move from death to life. Our sin nature is removed 
and it's replaced by God's holy nature. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the seal of that. He's the one who now that, that, the, that the old nature is removed and the new nature is put in, He's the one who now takes up residence. And He's the title holder. He's the one who holds ownership of our lives. Now, there can't be any question, and this is a theological debate, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? There can't be a question about who the owner is, and there can't be a time when occupancy is uncertain. We don't get saved, and then it's unclear who owns the house. Once we're saved, once the title's changed, once the ownership is transferred, once the old is out and the new is in, the Holy Spirit takes up residence and He says, I'm the owner. And once the Holy Spirit moves in, we're Christ. So He says, verse 3, He's given us His divine power. Second, as a result of that, verse 3 also says that His Spirit has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now notice that word granted because it means to give or bestow, but it has its basis in the legal concept of a grant. A grant is, is a, a transfer of full rights based on new ownership. Now that's a cool concept theologically. Because we're bought by the, Christ, uh, the price of Christ's blood, and because we're adopted as His children, now the Bible says we've been granted full rights. This is Romans 8. We've been granted full rights, including, verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness. So God's given us everything we need. There's no deficiency on His part. There, there's nothing He's held back uh, there, there's nothing that we still need to earn to become godly. It says He's given us everything. We have it all. This is an amazing fact of God's grace that He has fully equipped us. We're going to study this concept more tomorrow morning at family camp, but, but for the sake of our study this morning, let's just establish it very simply. There's a truth here. There's a spiritual principle here. The more the Spirit fills us, the more equipped we are. The more the Spirit fills us, the more equipped we are. If we completely yield ourselves to Him and to His control and to His leading and to His power, it will make us holy people. But if we claim possession, if we still try to hold on to some ownership, if, if we still say, well, that's great, and I love you, Lord, and I'm so glad you saved me, and I'm so glad you've changed me, and I'm so glad for the Holy Spirit, but I'm telling you right now, you can't have that room right there. I, I, you can have everything else. You can have the whole house, but, but I need to reserve this one room for me. It doesn't work that way. And we're going to find that we're weaker. We're going to find that we're not fully equipped when we still claim possession of something. And when that happens, our Christ-likeness diminishes. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Look at the third part of the concept. Everything we're given is pertaining to life and godliness. The Lord is not going to equip us or nurture anything in us that pertains to death and sin. Let me say that again. God is not going to equip us. He's not going to nurture it. He's not going to bless anything 
that is pertaining to death and sin. He cannot and will not support us when we live in conformity to the world because he can't. He's holy. It would be illogical for us to think that he would do that. He will only support, look back at the verse, he will only support what is pertaining, what supports spiritual life and vitality. He will only support, nurture, uh, encourage, and bless what makes us more holy. Number four, look at how we obtain this. We obtain this through the knowledge, this is middle of verse, uh, excuse me, middle of verse three. We obtain this through the true knowledge of Christ. Now, how do we learn Christ? We learn Christ through the Word. The Word is powerful. It teaches us everything we need to know about Jesus. John 1 says that Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's no way that we can neglect the Word in our life and get to know Jesus better. There's no way we can neglect the Word in our life and live more like Christ. If you're struggling right now in your walk, I would, I would almost guarantee, in fact, I would guarantee that if you're struggling in your walk right now, you're not spending enough time in the Word. In fact, you're probably not spending any time in the Word. And, and there's a direct correlation between it, and we know that, and the devil still says, you don't need time in the Word. The Word's not going to help you. It's ancient. It's out of date. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You need to neglect it. And you know what happens when we neglect the Word? We struggle. We don't know what it is to be like Christ. We don't open ourselves up to conviction and we become hard-hearted and we become dull and we become resistant and, and everything starts to fracture. Our mind isn't right. Our relationships aren't right. We don't have any joy. We don't have any contentment. We just kind of wander through life and we're saying, well, I'm kind of in a malaise. Why is that? You know why? It's because we're not in the Word. You spend an hour a day in the Word of God, I guarantee you, you will not wake up the next morning depressed. You'll be encouraged and strengthened. You'll find hope. You'll, you'll, you'll start to recognize where the deficiencies are in your life. You'll confess sin. You'll want to spend more time in the presence of the Lord. And you'll start to be vibrant again. If you're not spiritually vibrant right now, you better get in the Word of God today. Not just study and Paul preaches. I mean time between you and the Lord. Look at the fifth thought quickly. He's our standard because he's called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, the Lord isn't looking for us, as I said earlier, to try hard and do our best. Let's get that misguided thought out of our minds once and for all because it's not why Christ died and it's not why we're saved. Christ has called us to a holy calling. We have his Holy Spirit, you're going to sense a theme here. We have a holy calling. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a holy nature. We have the holy example of Christ. We have everything pertaining to life and holiness. And He calls us to live by the standard of Christ who is holy. Now that's a high calling. You say, well, that's pretty heavy on a hot muggy August morning. You're, you're telling me I've got to live a holy life. Yeah, because that's what God's equipped you to do. He's given you and me who love the Lord everything pertaining to life and holiness. So if we're not doing that, it's an issue of our will. It's not that we don't know what's expected. 
It's not that we don't have instruction. It's not that we don't have an example to follow. It's not that we don't have power. It's not that we don't have the capacity to live this way. He's provided all of it to us. He isn't calling us to do something that we can't do because that would just be cruel. If he says, I want you to be holy like I'm holy, but I'm not going to equip you to do that, he's just going to laugh at us and go, look at those little crazy people. They can't possibly be holy on their own. How are they going to do that? But that's my standard. You better be holy like I'm holy. He gives us what we need. And then look at the assurance in verse 4. He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them, by His promises, to provide all He needs, we can become partakers of the divine nature. And look at this last part because it sets up the last part of the section. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. We have been delivered from the corruption of our soul. Christ has made a way of escape. The old hymn says it, sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Now he says, I give you a new nature, and I want you to apply the benefits of that that I've given you so you can live this out every single day. Now if we choose not to do that, and we choose to, to go back to our old self, then we can expect very little power. We can't experience his magnificent promises and then say, well, I'm going to go back and partake in my old nature and everything's going to be wonderful. No, if we're going to be partakers of his divine nature, then we need to live as partakers of his divine nature. That only makes sense. But the enemy keeps pressing this delusion into our mind that, that we can live for ourselves and still call ourselves Christians. Devil's a liar. Look, come on, we know that, right? Devil's a liar. He's not being straight with us. He doesn't have our best interests in mind. Look at the promise. One more time, verse 3. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So how do we live this out? We have the impetus. We have the means. Now in verses 5 to 8, he says, apply all diligence. And I love, and I've got to do this even though it's, it's getting late. I've got to... I've got to, we've got to see how these eight actions, and we'll do them, you know, 20 seconds on each. These eight actions fit together and feed into each other. This is in verses 5 to 8. Look at it. It starts with faith. Everything is based on our faith. What you believe dictates how you live. Your theology will always order your practice. If you believe Christ died and rose again to keep you from going to hell, and that's the only reason He just died and rose again, so you could get free from sin, and you don't have to go to hell, you can go to heaven, and that's the essence of life, then you're going to live in a certain way that keeps that I'm secure as the main focus. But if you believe that Jesus died and rose again to change you from a slave to sin to a child of God, that that He marks you now with righteousness and He calls you to live for Christ, if you believe that this is a total transformation of your life that changes your mind forever, then you will live another way. You'll live full of gratitude, and, and you'll reject sin. You won't want anything to do with sin. You won't want anything to do with the world. Your focus will be on your witness. You see the difference? If it's just, well, I got my free pass. Don't have to go to hell. Yay! Going to heaven. Just waiting it out. Doing my thing. 
God says, I can't lose my, hey, pastor, you said you can't lose your salvation. So I prayed, and I trusted God, and I'm good to go. Don't, don't really need a change in my life because God saved me. Forgiven. If we have that kind of callous theology, guess how we're going to live? But if it's Christ is everything, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, this table is a representation of the sacrifice of Christ for my sins. And because he sacrificed, I'm now bought from sin. And I'm transferred from death to life. And he owns me and he indwells me. And he gives me everything pertaining to life and godliness. And my witnesses to tell people of that. You're going to live a very different way. Starts with faith. Then Peter says there's a progression. Look at the eight characteristics quickly. Starts with faith, and faith leads to moral excellence. Once you believe in and are overwhelmed by the privilege of faith in Christ, it changes you. Ask yourself this morning, what drives you? Who do you love? What do you love? What's your purpose for waking up today? What's your purpose for waking up tomorrow? Is it to earn money? Or is it to advance in a career? Or is it to raise kids? Or is it to do your hobbies? Or is it to play on the computer? Or is what drives you every moment for me to live as Christ? Faith and conviction leads to purposely choosing holiness. Look at what's next. Moral excellence needs to knowledge. Greater knowledge about what honors God. Greater knowledge about what makes us holy. How do we do that? Very simply, biblical education. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Tell me. The Word of God. Can't neglect the Word. Faith, conviction, education. Knowledge then, look at the next thought, leads to self-control. When we have insight into what is necessary to be holy, okay, so we've trusted in Christ, we're full of conviction, we're studying His Word, and His Word tells us what to do. Now we're faced with a choice. Are we going to do it or not? This is why people shy away from the Word. Because they read the Word, and the Word says, live this way, and they go, I don't think I want to do that. Not today, at least. Does the Word drive you, or does the Word kind of frustrate you? Do, do you? do you say, this is how I have to live, or do you say, what can I get around in the Word? See, faith leads to, not, to conviction. Conviction leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to self-control. Are we going to pursue what's holy and set apart, or are we going to conform to the world? Essentially, we're asking, am I going to harm myself, or am I going to help myself? Self-control is what drives out of knowledge, and after self-control is perseverance, because how many know that the hardest part of self-control is consistency? Ever been on a diet? I can go four or five days, man, I'm eating salad, I'm doing good, I'm not snacking after nine, and then somebody puts a plate of brownies in front of me. Or somebody says, let's go get some pizza, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> can we get deep dish, Giordano's please, with pepperoni and lots of cheese? And guess what that wipes out? The last five days of eating weeds. The hardest part of self-control is consistency. It's about the repetition. Listen now. The repetition of holiness every day. What are your spiritual goals? How are you going to determine that you're going to deny yourself every day? It's like a spiritual diet for our soul. You're going to stick with it or are you going to cheat? 
And the wonderful thing is that the Holy Spirit gives us discipline and restraint when we call on Him to renew our mind and give us a love for what's pleasing to the Lord. So we've got faith, we've got conviction, we've got knowledge, we've got self-control. Self-control leads to perseverance. Look at the next thought. Perseverance leads to godliness. The daily practice of our faith and obedience makes us more and more like Christ. That's because we're building a pervasive habit of holiness. We're not allowing ourselves to fall back. We're resisting the devil because we know when we do, he'll flee. We're taking the door of escape anytime temptation comes calling. We're having other believers hold us accountable and pray for us. And we're being unwavering and saying, Lord, I submit myself to you every single day. See, perseverance is standing firm for righteousness. And it comes out of this conviction and this knowledge and the self-control and this perseverance. And that leads to godliness. Look at what comes out of godliness. Brotherly kindness. I was struck as I studied that how far down the list that is. So everybody says, oh, Christians, you guys should be kind and loving. And that's absolutely true. But how can we be kind and loving and sacrificial to each other if we don't do the first six things? How am I going to be kind and loving to you if I'm ticked off and angry and not walking with Christ and not following the Word and living a worldly life and have no self-control? If you make me angry, guess what? I'm going to get angry. So there's no way brotherly kindness is going to happen unless we deny this sin on the front end. It's amazing how much of a barrier sin is in preventing us from being kind to other people. And then look at a brotherly kindness is love. Remember the old song in the 70s, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Well, how are we going to know love unless the first seven are in order? This is the last thing to genuinely take place because we really can't authentically show love to each other until we're living like Christ. Why? Because if self still has control... I have no reason to love you. If self is in control, I have no reason to love you. That's why the Bible says to us as spouses, love one another and submit to one another as you do to Christ. You cannot love in marriage and be about yourself. It just doesn't work. Person, couple after couple after couple after couple, I have counseled in 28 years. I've lost track. It's in the middle hundreds. Every single one of them that was struggling, it was sourced back to one or both living for themselves. Every one. I cannot think of one exception in the tens of thousands of hours of counseling I've done. You want to get along with your spouse? Then quit being about yourself. Love Christ, love them. Brotherly kindness leads to love. Now there's one last thought at the risk of exasperating you, but this is a great thought. Look at verses 9 to 11. Peter writes that if these qualities are yours and increasing... You'll be useful and fruitful 
the eight qualities of the standard. They're the fruit that comes from being Christ-like and Spirit-filled. Not only is it expected that they will be characteristic of every single believer's life, but we're to be, look at the word, we're to be increasing in them every day. But look at what verse 9 says about those who lack these qualities. This is brutal. This is hard to read. It says, those who lack these qualities are blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the fact that Jesus has purified us from our sins. In other words, there's a callous lack of remembrance, and there's a, there's a, a careless lack of appreciation for what Christ has done, that we've been cleansed and released from sin. And instead of just being on our faces saying, God, thank you so much for that. Thank you that we have received your grace. Thank you that you've changed our lives. Thank you that I am a transformed believer filled with your Holy Spirit. Instead of saying that, we just say, I want to do my thing. Your gift is magnificent, but you know what? I'm going to throw it over to the side and I'm going to play with something else. If anybody could speak from experience about this, it was Peter. At the moment where his love and loyalty was tested, what did he do? He denied Christ not one time, not two times, but the third time he denied him, he swore and said, I have nothing to do with that man. But from the moment that happened and the moment Jesus looked at him and Peter knew the searing in his soul and said, that's not what I was going to do. I've hurt my Lord from that moment on, there is nobody that is more faithful to Christ than Peter. He understood the transformation. And he's so diligent. That's why he says, personal experience, we're done. Thank you for listening. Look at verse 10. Brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling. Because if you practice these things, you will never stumble. We are partakers. Oh, I love this. Just close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes. Listen to this truth. We are partakers of the divine nature. Keep your eyes closed. We've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. This is how gracious our Lord is. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We exalt you this morning that you have given us by your grace, by Jesus Christ, the only Savior. You have given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, Lord, our calling, our calling is to live that every moment of every day. Lord, we know even right now the enemy is fighting. Even right now the enemy is accusing. Even right now the enemy is lying. He's speaking to us. He's saying, this is not truth. You don't need this. Lord, banish him. Banish him. Give us a courage and a strength and a conviction that this is how we are going to live because you have equipped us with a holy nature and your Holy Spirit and your holy word. Lord, may we this week, every day, 
follow the example of Christ. May we represent you well. Lord, empower us and equip us to do that. May we not falter. Lord, when temptation comes along, give us the courage to resist it. Give us the strength to offset it. When the enemy wants to discourage us and dishearten us, Lord, give us the strength to fight against it. By the power of your Spirit, we pray you would give us a resilience and a holy fire for you. Strengthen us this week. Lord, may this be a magnificent week of seeing your hand of blessing. May this be a magnificent week of spiritual growth. May this be a magnificent week where we see people around us come to Christ because of our witness. Give us boldness this week, we pray. We love you and we praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus, Lord. Father, we pray for the group now that's going to camp. Give us safety as we travel Give us a wonderful week of spiritual refreshing and personal encouragement and stronger relationships. Bless the body here, Lord, as we go about our work. May you strengthen us and give us power. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we're a part of the body of Christ this morning. And we pray you would send us out now in the joy of the Lord. We love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, Amen.